Welcome to the podcast of ideas. In 1997, Culture of Fear by Frank Ferreira provided a new analysis of the role of risk consciousness in modern society. In 2018, he returned to this theme in How Fear Works. Why has fear acquired such a morally commanding status in society today? How has the way we fear today changed from the way it was experienced in the past? This is a recording of a session at the Battle of Ideas Festival 2018 in which Professor Ferreira talks to Tamandra Harkness about the themes of how fear works. I'm Tamandra Harkness. Uh, I'm really excited to be here for an in-conversation with Professor Frank Ferreira about his new book, How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, which is available in the shop, and he has said if you buy it afterwards, he will sign it for you. And I recommend it. I've read it. It's very good indeed. So uh, what I'm going to do, we've got an hour. I'm going to monopolise him for half an hour and ask the questions that I want to ask, and then I'll come out uh, and let you ask questions or argue with him. Uh, what we'll do at that point is probably take two or three points or questions at a time and, and see how many we can get through. The first question... Oh, well, I, I should, I suppose... I kind of tend to assume Frank is doing a number of sessions here, so I'm kind of assuming that you've probably heard him introduced already, but if anyone has not encountered Professor Ferreira before... Uh, he's a, you're an emeritus professor from University of Kent at Canterbury, I believe, and has written more books than I have read in my lifetime, I think, uh, including just a few. This new one, obviously, but from the past. Uh, what else? Culture of Fear in 2002. So like an earlier iteration of some of these ideas. On Tolerance, Paranoid Parenting, Invitation to Terror. Many, many, many books. Anyway, more than I have had time to read in my entire life. You get through a lot of ideas in this book, starting from this culture of fear idea, which you first visited, I think, in the late 1990s. So what I'd like to start off by asking is just, what has changed since then? Are we more afraid than we were in the late 90s? Is that what's different? Yeah, well, well, one of the questions that's always asked is, are we more scared than we were 10 years ago, or before 9-11, or um, the 19th century? And one of the things that led me to write this book is to try to understand what is different about the way we fear compared to the past. And the conclusion that I've drawn is that it's not possible to say with any certainty that we're more afraid now than before because, you know, you cannot measure fear. It's not something you can reduce quantitatively to numbers. But we do talk much more about fear. So the one thing that you can be very certain about is that, we, that the, the word fear it's much more on our lips ever before. And we tend to perform fear all the time. We talk about how scary things really are. But whether or not we're more afraid, that's a, that's a very difficult question to answer. And I think that uh, what I try to do uh, in the book is to try to understand why it is uh, that fear uh, and, and the, the rhetoric of fear and the narrative of fear it so much pervades our everyday life. So if it's not just about being more afraid, what is it that's changed? One of the phrases that leapt out at me from the book was a structure of meaning. You talk about fear as a structure of meaning. Could you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah, I mean, what I've done is I've gone back to the beginning of history, uh, to the Greeks and to the Romans, tried to understand how they understood fear. And if you go back all the way to the Bible, you'll find that in, the, in biblical times, the word, the fear of God, was synonymous with religion. 
and being a God-fearing person had a real meaning for uh, individuals. And throughout most of history, fear had this positive moral connotations. The issue of fear used to be dealt with by theologians and philosophers. But something very important happened in the late 19th, early 20th century, which is with the development of the new science of psychology, medicine and psychology began to displace theology and philosophy as the medium through which we interpreted fear. And what I argue in the book is that what has really changed and what defines our notion of fear is that we lost uh, the language of meaning. We no longer have a, a moral sensibility with which you can make sense of fear. And instead of having a moral sensibility to understand fear, we use a medical vocabulary. We talk about uh, sort of uh, medical phobias and problems. And I think it's the psychological turn of fearing which makes it so difficult for people to cope with stuff. Which is why even uh, ordinary existential problems, the kind of problems that people used to just live with, have turned into issues which are seen as being a threat to your mental health, uh, a cause of your illness, as a major risk to your way of life. And this was something else that leapt out of me, is you seem to be quite critical of the use of psychology as a way of understanding how human beings think and feel, uh, which, which I found very surprising because generally when I encounter psychology, it's seen as, well, this is great because we can understand ourselves better, and by understanding ourselves better, we can function better. So what's the problem with using psychology as the way of understanding both fear and other things about ourselves? Well, I think psychology is a really useful science for understanding uh, clinical and social problems that are in, the are in the domain of our internal life to do with psychological issues. But I think what has happened is that uh, ever since the 1960s, 1970s, gradually problems that used to be defined as the problems of existence have almost uh, imperceptibly been reinterpreted as psychological ones. So for example, everyday problems that we have, if you have a kid uh, a boy who's a bit like I was when I was a child, very active, and you know, used to get into trouble, you give them a, a diagnosis, they have an attention deficit or they're hyperactive. And most children I know that have attention deficit remind me very much of myself and my friends. And we didn't get Ritalin to solve that problem. We weren't given medicine to deal with those issues. We had other ways of coping with these kinds of issues. If you are like me, and are a little bit shy. When you go to a party, everybody's having a nice time. You're looking at your shoelaces. You're worried about nobody talking to you. You know, we don't call you shy anymore. You now have social phobia. And once you kind of redefine you know, our inability to deal with new situations as social phobia, then the, the meaning uh, of that experience becomes more threatening, more difficult to deal with. Um, another example I think that you will relate to is bullying. Now, there used to be a time when bullying was seen that something that children had to live with and overcome. So, you know, the idea was when I was a kid, if I was bullied, uh, my dad or my mom would say, you know, there's a strategy for dealing with those bullies. You're going to have to learn to deal with it because you're going to meet them all your life. And no matter what you do, you cannot escape from that. You have, you're going to have to gain the inner strength to deal with it. Well, today, 
children are no longer allowed to deal with bullies because it's a, it's a threat to their mental health, you get a, an army of counselors and mentors and teachers to come in and sort out the problem for you. But listen to this. Listen to this. One time, bullying was an experience associated with children. Right? When I was a kid, only children were bullied. Well, today, bullying has become kind of migrated into the office, into the workplace, and everybody at work is complaining about being bullied. And if somebody doesn't smile at you, for example, if on a Friday night everybody goes out for a drink but you're not invited, that's bullying. And once you get into that kind of situation that you're, you feel you're being bullied, then of course even the experience of work becomes very stressful and, 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 and very kind of fearful. This is something else that you talk about in the book that I'd, I'd like you to explain a bit more. You talk about creating the fearful subject, uh, which it seems to be a, a, a related to this, that the way that children are taught to deal with things is then turning them into a, a person who sees the world through, well, through the framework of fear. It, it, what, what do you mean by that? How, how does that happen and why is it a bad thing? Uh, I think that's, my, that's probably the most important chapter in the book, creating the fearful subject. And the reason why I wrote that chapter is because I wanted to answer the question, which is why is it that as you look at different generations, the younger you go down uh, the generational scale, the, the greater the range of experiences that people find very difficult to cope with. And I couldn't understand why it was that uh, teenagers find it very difficult to talk about the difficulty of going to universities. Why was it? Because, you know, in my generation, we just loved the idea of leaving home, never seeing our parents again, and making this transition to adults. That was a real buzz, right? Whereas now what you have is you have this uh, issue of transition. And you have uh, people, in, in, you know, like, for example, uh, I've got a, a partner, she's 58. She started doing a PhD late in life in Sussex University. She's waiting to get a reading list for this PhD. Very excited about getting a, PA, a reading list. Doesn't get it. She emails them back. After two weeks, she gets an email back saying, Dear Mrs. Ferredi, we're glad you're coming in here. And if you need any, any support, you know, any kind of psychological support, we've got all these different groups of people that will help. Not a word about the reading list, not about a word about philosophy. And she kind of, she's a bit bemused. She's still waiting for the reading list. A week later, she gets another email. I'm not making this up. And the email says, oh, by the way, when you come on campus, there's freshers and everything else, we got a room. We got a room where we have therapy dogs. In other words, dogs that you can stroke. So you could, this is a 58-year-old person, right, who's seen a lot in life. You know, is, is now expected to be stroking dogs when she arrives at Sussex University. So why is that? Well, the reason why that is, uh, I argue in the book, is because the way we socialize young people is no longer through the medium of moral values. It's no longer through the medium of explaining to them this is right and this is wrong. No longer about giving them a narrative about what life is all about, how much risk you're expected to take. No longer gives them a sense of meaning about how you deal with the world. Instead, what it is, is we, we have this new technique of validating children. So we don't give them values, but we validate them. And validation means that when they go to school, they get a hundred smiley faces when they come back. I don't know if you ever have kids, but they come back, you know, sort of uh, after the first day, oh, mommy, daddy, 
look at all the smiley faces I've got. You know, and it goes on like that. We can, you kind of raise their self-esteem. You never question or criticize them. And when you continually validate people all the time and you reaffirm them and make them feel good about themselves, it actually makes it very difficult for young people to deal with uncertainty. It makes it very difficult for them to deal with threats. It becomes more and more confusing when they come to the world uh, and they meet people that instead of validating them or criticizing them or, question, or, e or even being mean to them. In other words, I think what we've done is we created a, a situation where people are not given the moral resources to deal with uncertainty. So is there something positive about a world in which you actually get to feel fear? Because it, I mean, it seems that what we've done is we live in a very uh, materially advanced country, quite a socially liberal country, and we've decided that people should feel good about themselves and people should feel happy, and why should they be upset? And people love their children, so they want to protect them. But, I mean, it, it seems a very natural instinct to me that you don't want your children to be frightened. Is there something positive about situations where people get to feel frightened? No, really, I, I don't think you want to put your child in a position where they're kind of peeing in their pants because they're scared. I think what, I, I think, uh, what I'm arguing for is that uh, a, cru a crucial process in, in child development and in the development of young people is to be able to deal with uncertainty. Uncertainty uh, comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And you know, it, it comes about when you meet new people, when you go to the playground for the first time in your life, it comes about when you're being tested in schools or in a sport field. And then what happens is, as you know, is when we, when we face uncertainty, we react in a number of different ways. Sometimes we get scared. Sometimes we embrace it. We, we get a buzz out of uncertainty. And I think that one of the, one of the challenges of, of good socialization is to allow young people and children to learn how to, uh, how to deal with it. They learn about their strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes they get scared, but there's a bit of a, it's a bit like when you're learning a bicycle. I don't know if you remember, you learn a bicycle and you get really scared at the beginning. I mean, it's really scary to begin with, but then somewhere along the line, something clicks. And what used to be a very frightening experience, you know, you get a sense of control and it feels really, really good. And, I, and that's what I'm talking about. That's really what we're not giving enough to children to, to, to deal with. I, what you've provoked to me, Maybe a bit of a non sequitur, but I was just thinking of the most frightening experiences in my life, and I have done, I've done flying trapeze and downhill motorcycling and so on, but actually the most frightening thing probably I did was internet dating. Uh, now obviously for young people that's the kind of, that's, that's their norm, but it does make me think, is there something about the way we see relationships now that is also resistant to uncertainty and risk? I think very much so. I think that uh, we find uh, the spontaneity and the informality of relationships uh, a challenge. So from a very, very early age onwards, we're trying to create a kind of template as to how you should relate to one another. For example, there's been a lot of debates on consent. So we should teach children how to give consent. But of course, if any of you ever had a, a serious relationship, you will know that any, any serious relationship is by definition fluid, ambiguous. I mean, the nice thing about a good relationship is you don't know what's expected of you, but you know roughly that there's an invitation there. 
but it's not clear that the invitation is to you rather than to somebody else until a couple of hours later. And, but you're going through it, it's very scary because obviously you're fearing being rejected. You kind of uh, worry about miscommunications. And when it comes to relationships, it is, a, a, it is seen as a risk. I mean, there is nothing more scary and nothing more risky than falling in love. Because the minute you fall in love, you risk being betrayed. I mean, love is on the one hand beautiful because it brings you closer and closer and closer together. But the closer you get, the more you give of yourself, the higher the stakes if you then one day find that that person no longer loves you. And I think in that sense, relationships, you know, precisely because they are so scary, have become almost redefined where we have all these templates to insulate each other from the hurt and the pain. And we have a variety of strategies. In sociology, we call that cultural cooling, where we try to basically advise people not to, not to get too close to each other, and certainly not to get too close to each other too fast. It, I mean, it's feeling like what we have is not just a problem of uh, bringing up young people and children, but that in, in society generally, we have trouble with the idea of risk. I mean, risk and quantifying risk and using data and statistics to deal with risk is something that I'm very interested in, but I find more and more that risk is always seen in terms of danger. It's always seen as a bad thing. How should we be thinking about risk? Well, I think uh, we've got to regard risk as an opportunity or a problem. A risk is, risk, everything is ultimately a risk. And, and we basically have got to try to develop our intuition, our instincts, educate our intuition, our instincts, so we can learn to live with uh, sort of uncertainty. I think the opposite to uncertainty and, and, and avoiding risk is to continually turn relationships into transactions, into formalized relationships. You know, we got a, a term, one of my favorite terms that really defines our insecure existence. Have you ever heard of the term which I never heard about when I was a kid called negotiated sex. Is anybody? I mean, I think it's a, it's a very cute idea. You know, I, I don't, you know, I've never negotiated sex, you know, sort of, because I've never been with a prostitute. That's what I think a negotiated sex is really all about. But what they really mean is that to be really responsible in a sexual relationship, you've got to, you know, lay down the laws. You, you know, I, I mean, I would imagine it basically means like you have a little negotiation. Now, I don't know if you ever had a real love affair, but can you imagine as you're getting closer and closer, hold it, hold it, let's talk about it, you know, are we going too fast, maybe we should, today maybe we should just kiss on, on, the, on the cheek so that tomorrow we can reflect on the possibility of kissing each other on the lips and then if things work out, if we really like each other, because we, the negotiations are really good, we can even use tongues on the, next, on, on the week after that. I can really imagine, because the whole point about negotiated sex is that the very opposite of what I, in an old school way, would call real sex, you know, where, where you don't have this transactional element. And it seems to me that once we have transactions and negotiations, once we pathologize spontaneity, which is what we're doing, um, and the whole language of sex education is precisely directed towards that, we become much more scared and much more fearful about letting go. And letting go is a really important dimension of taking risks. I mean, in all, not just in relationship areas, but in business, education, the realm of ideas.
There's, um, to slightly bring you back to what you were saying earlier about psychology, you seem to counterpose psychology as a way of understanding people and what we do and why we do it to morality. And you talk about how safety is now a moral value. How does that work? I mean, safety feels to me like one of those ideas that's just very common sense. Like, again, you know, why, why wouldn't you want to be safe? Why wouldn't you want your children to be safe? What do you mean when you say it's become a moral value? And, and if not that, then what should, what should moral values be if not safety? Well, I got a chapter that's called The Sacralization of Safety, the way that safety has become the fundamental value of Western society. And what I'm really arguing there is that in the absence of traditional classical moral values of our right and wrong, good and evil, courage, prudence, all those values that used to be really essential to the human imagination, what we've become is almost drawn towards the one thing that we think is really crucially important, which is to be safe. And uh, if you want to know what I'm talking about, you go on every single company's website and they all have this value statement. Every company's got a value statement which is probably written by the same person because it sounds very much alike. And if you look at the document, they always begin, if you're a car company, you will say, the number one priority of our business is the safety of our customers. Whereas I would have thought the number one priority would be to produce a good car, you know, an efficient car, one that works. Or, you, you know, uh, I remember uh, going to school on the first day, uh, going to school to try to find a school for my kid. And every school I went to, the teachers would say, Mr. Ferredi, our number one priority is the safety of your child. And I would say, well, that's really nice, but I would have thought your number one priority would be to educate my child, right? And to teach them maths and all the rest of that. And you can see that somehow this idea of safety has overtaken a whole lot of other dimensions of experience. And increasingly, our, our language uses safety as a qualifier. So we have safe sex, we have safe spaces, right? I mean, the number of times we're using safe to signify virtue. And it really hit me when I was in America. Uh, I was staying in Brooklyn with some friends of mine, and I decided one night to go out and get a bottle of wine so we can talk a little bit more. And as I'm leaving the house to get a bottle of wine, my host says to me, okay, Frank, stay safe. And I never heard that expression before, you know, stay safe. And then I realized... Everywhere I go in America, they tell me to stay safe. And I was only going down to the wine shop a block away. It wasn't exactly a jungle, but the idea that you know, somehow you know, staying safe is like something that we should be saying. I know it, wasn't, it was meant rhetorically, but the very fact that we're using safe in that way indicates just how obsessed we have become about the value of safety. And that becomes, it seems to me, uh, an artificial attempt to create a value out of something that we all want. We all want to, want to be safe, but it's not a value. Being safe is a condition of our, our existence. Yeah, that, that did ring true to me, actually, because it, it made me think of how people who do take risks are often seen as morally suspects. I remember the, the woman climber a few years ago who died on K2 and was widely con condemned for having recklessly risked her life and abandoned her two young children. Uh, and, and people who go and, and take risks are then seen as well. That was, that was very irresponsible of you, as if you should be responsible to somebody else 
for the risks that you take. But what kind of moral values has that displaced? If, if our kind of unspoken moral is you must be safe, what, what other values have been pushed out by that that we should be trying to get back? Or, or do, we, do we leave all that behind and go, let's look for some new values, moral values that are better? Well, in the once upon a time, the kind of issues that safety is meant to address would have been covered by the, the virtue or the value of prudence. And I think prudence is a very interesting concept because it sounds very old-fashioned and conservative and funny-duddy and everything else. But what prudence basically counsels us to do is look at problems, look at the risk and the issues that confront us, and to try to make a reasoned judgment call in relation to that. So it doesn't mean to be prudent, doesn't mean to say that you just say no to every single threat or you say no to every single risk. It means that you kind of create a, you, know, you kind, of, kind of work it out. You, you by take using, a calculated risk. You, you do. And, 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 and the one value I, I think that we need to bring back that's missing at the moment, uh, and I know it sounds weird that I'm saying it, is, is really the virtue of courage. Courage used to be seen as being a really important part of people's lives. And uh, you have loads of books written about it until about the early part of the 20th century. When courage begins to be described in one of two ways, it's either seen as being like really macho, really uh, exaggerated, courageous guy who kind of hero, and therefore it's an impossible thing for us to live up to. Or what you have, and this happens particularly in the United States, is the meaning of courage is devalued. So courage now means the courage to survive. You know, and you've got books being written, the courage to survive office politics. You know, the courage to survive your first date. The courage to survive you know, going to school. So courage becomes this meaningless you know, sort of kind of concept in, as opposed to something that involves uh, basically stretching yourself, you know, facing up to a challenge and, and trying to deal with it uh, in circumstances that are actually quite difficult. Yeah, but courage, we don't mean you do crazy things, but it basically means you, you, you kind of take, go as far as possible, given the balance of probabilities of dealing with uncertain uh, issues. So the difference between taking a risk and feeling at risk is, is courage, is being active. Yes, I think being at risk is a very passive accomplishment, where you feel that things happen to you by these forces that are outside of you. Whereas the taking of risk involves the exercise of agency. It basically means that you, you know that things can go wrong. Uh, you know that you might burn your finger. But on balance, it's worth taking that chance because the rewards uh, of that experience are going to be quite something. But one other thing, before I let everybody else have a word in, there was one other thing that you that you talk about which i found really challenging and i wonder if you could unpack it and explain it a bit to me you talk about an antithesis of fear and freedom as if fear and freedom are two opposing uh forces i guess and and i found that quite challenging because fear is an emotion is a feeling uh and freedom i always associate with things outside of myself, so things that might stop me doing something and hold me back. 
So what do you mean when you talk about fear and freedom as an antithesis? Well, uh, I think what I'm, I'm trying to get a number of things, which is, um, you know, very often uh, when we fear, and even more often when we are encouraged to fear, we tend to uh, adopt the uh, attitude of trading off our freedom for security. And I think that takes a lot of time. For example, after the 9-11 incident, a lot of governments passed these laws, anti-terrorist laws, that basically said, if, we, if you give up a bit of your freedom, then we'll make you feel more secure. Right? And, and therefore, a lot of people said, okay, giving up a, a little bit of freedom is a small price to pay for being more secure. Today on campuses, you have a situation where a lot of people argue that it's really well worth giving up a bit of your freedom to speak freely, to have the freedom of speech, in order to protect some people from the harm of being offended. And therefore, it said it's quite reasonable to censor certain words or to regulate speech because that protects people. So you have this trade-off between uh, sort of trading off your freedom to speak in the way you want to, you, to be yourself, against the, the right of people not to be offended. So these little trade-offs occur now. My argument is, is that there is, whenever you trade off freedom uh, because you fear something, you actually not only give away your freedom, but you never feel more secure. Because the tragedy is, is that the more you give up your freedom, the less powerful you become the less able you are to deal with the uncertainties that you are faced with. And one of the tragedies are is that some people can see this in some domains. People can see this in relation to the anti-terrorism laws, and they say, oh yeah, it's really wrong to give up our freedom in here. But they, at the same time, the very same people that criticize anti-terrorism laws have no problem with trading off freedom, free speech for not being offended on campuses. And I think we need to be totally against any form of a trade-off. I think when it comes to your freedoms, they should be non-negotiable. Does this arise from the way that fear is a kind of underlying, a, a, as you said earlier, a kind of moral structure that we see the world through? Is that inevitably going to mean that by valuing safety, freedom becomes seen as an optional extra? Well, as long as you value safety, that will be the case. I think safety is not a bad thing. I think we all want to be safe. But we don't want to turn the desire to be safe into value. And I think that uh, you know, my argument in the book is that freedom is logically prior to every single other value. And in particular, free speech is logically prior to every other freedom and every other value. Because unless you can say whatever you want, what you feel is important, unless you can express your inclinations, the other freedoms don't mean anything and values don't mean anything because you can't even articulate the commitment to a particular value that you have unless you're free to do it. So is freedom and having a kind of moral freedom, being a morally free, autonomous person, is that inextricably linked to risk? To Absol taking risks. Absolutely, and, and, and the conclusion that I've drawn, it took me a long time to get there, which shows you my limitations, is actually freedom 
it's not simply a piece of paper. It's not something that somebody gives you. It's not like, a, you, know, you, you know, you are now free, my children. Isn't that good? Freedom only comes alive, only means something when you live it. It's in the act of living, of being free, that you begin to act with any degree of moral autonomy. And it's in the act of being free that the possibility of facing uncertainty and risks becomes a creative dimension. And the one thing I've learned from history is that every society, and there aren't very many of them, that genuinely embrace freedom were also genuinely drawn towards democracy and they were also genuinely drawn towards risk-taking. From ancient Athens to today, the societies that were the real risk-takers, who lived freely, were also the ones that also had these other virtues. Well, on that note, I think it's definitely time to come out and see who's going to risk asking a question or expressing an opinion. Uh, I think we have some roving microphones. Yes, we have some roving microphones. So let's... Uh, start maybe with that guy there and that guy there and then we'll work our way outwards yeah can you hear me <clears throat> i think it's pretty fair to say that we're primordially wired to fear the things that lurk in the dark right so you you know you you, you check your bank balance and you you've got the clear information now and so you know you can deal with it or not so you you, you have clear information and you you're calmer about things so over the last 30 years, our access to information has just, you know, with the internet has shot up. So, what do you, do you think, how, if any, has that changed things? So, having access to lots of information. Yeah, because when, when you have clear information about a situation in your daily life, you know whether you can act on it or not. So, the fear's gone down. You've got a situation you can deal with or not. So. Okay, very good question. I actually, I'm going to take two at a time because we haven't got anywhere to write notes down. So, uh, so respect both our memories. So I'll take yours and then I'll let Frank respond and then come out again. Yeah. I'm interested in the implications for politics of what you're talking about. And I found it interesting that you referred to the psychologization of um, our, our understanding of ourselves in terms of fear. Um, you've already alluded to the loss of freedom uh, traded off for, for security. What, what other implications do you think uh, this has for political discourse, the way that we do politics? Well, I mean, historically, uh, people used, used to talk about the politics of fear as being very effective, and they would draw on the writings of Thomas Hobbes or Machiavelli, who talked about the capacity of fear to unite. Uh, my view is, is that we've uh, have overused fear, so that very, it's what I find very, very interesting is that uh, the use of fear no longer has this uniting force in the way that it had in the past. For example, after 9-11, even though there was a lot of uh, use of the politics of fear by the Bush administration, you found that within a few months, 30% of the American electorate said they don't believe what the government says. So instead of bringing people together, it kind of divided them. And in, I got an essay coming out in, a, in an American journal on this subject. What I argue is that the politics of fear today has a tendency to segment and segregate and disunite different sections. And what I find happening is that every sector of the political class, from the left to the right, uses the politics of fear 
but for different purposes. You know, and I think that's the kind of what I find fascinating today. On information, I think it depends on the cultural context because information can liberate you and give you a sense of power that you, know, you really know what's going on. Or alternatively, if the culture, uh, in a sense, makes you feel disoriented, then information can be seen as an enemy. And I think today we have both of those uh, trends at work. There's a lot of argument about big data and about how all this information out there is making us extremely insignificant. And others who argue the internet is liberating us, we're creating a more democratic society. I think both of those are wrong. I think at the end of the day, it's, it very much depends upon our confidence in the quality of information, and our, particularly our capacity to interpret it. It's always our belief and our confidence in being able to interpret that stuff. Great. Okay, let's take a couple more. Are you right with taking two at a time? Is that yeah, good? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, uh, there was, uh, yes, you'd like to take that, that next hand there, in, in there, and that guy there. Do you think there's a, 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 an actual link between the kind of the macho risk-taking and moral risk-taking? Um, in the sense that, historically, you know, Brits who wandered around the world imposing themselves on different countries uh, were actually stomping around in quite dangerous circumstances. And today, there is a bit of a thing about, you know, the, the Bear grills leaping into the lake naked with a bit of stick and this kind of stuff. I mean, I know that's all a bit ridiculous, but is there a link between um, the willingness to expose yourself to a physical risk? Like, my more, uh, being a war reporter is a more useful kind of a thing. You know, because that takes, in my mind, is, is something morally good and there is some courage there. But do you think that is a real link, or is it just happenstance? Okay, good. Physical, moral risk-taking, and yeah. We take the example of bullying, then, uh, and if your perspective is solely that of the individual, then obviously there's nothing good that can be said about bullying. It, it's indefensible. It has to be stopped. And it seems to me that that's the discourse that informs a, a, a lot of anti-bullying policy these days. On the other hand, once your focus becomes not the individual, but society and some collective interest, then you can understand bullying for the reason you gave. Namely, it's about um, in helping the individual to learn how to cope in collective situations. It's a training for life, if you like. Now, th I, I just think this is an example of the dynamic that is possibly being played out more broadly, which is that nowadays our moral focus or our moral discourse tends to be shaped solely by focusing on the individual. And what we've lost is the ability to form a moral framework by seeing what society needs. Um, and I just wonder if, if you think that's a useful way of understanding the culture of fear, because all of your examples about safety, from the individual's perspective, safety has to be paramount. But from society's perspective, risk, it is also something that has to be factored in. There are many other values. So it's that, is it that fundamental misapproach which is giving us now the wrong moral framework? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting, th I don't think that uh, physical risk-taking, the facing of dangers, necessarily has a moral component. I think uh, facing physical danger has a moral component, but it's linked to other virtues. 
like the taking of responsibility, for example. So what you're doing is, or, or when, 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 when you have got other kind of issues and values in mind, uh, it's not about the mindless jumping off a cliff for the sake of it. I'm not against that, but it's got no you know, inner kind of moral kind of content. I think there's a link between uh, morality and the, and the preparedness of facing physical dangers. And the link was really shown up, I think, last week when we heard about the deputy police commissioner in London basically saying that while this policeman was being knifed to death, in his wisdom he decided to stay in his car and look at his fingernails, right? And he decided that, that his role, as imagine this kind of leading policeman decides that it's far better that he is protected while this guy is facing physical danger. And I think there's a lot of examples like that when uh, you have what, what I would, in the old days we used to have a word we don't use very much, which is cowardice. When you behave cowardly and you don't take responsibility for the welfare of the people around you. And I think that kind of institutionalized cowardice is in every domain of our lives. I mean, I experienced this at my university. For example, every university now has got a risk assessment committee. So that when you're a PhD student doing a PhD, you gotta give your, 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 your research plans to this committee and they will tell you whether you could do it or not. Now, when I did my, the PhD that I did when I was uh, 19, 20, 21, would never be allowed today. It would be too risky. Because I went to Kenya, I spent a year in a small village, I was out of contact with people, I was talking to Mama rebellion uh, sort of guys, guerrillas, you know, so nobody knew where I knew I was. I, I, you know, today that would be seen as not possible. And in fact, I would say that many of the classics of criminology, where criminologists would go around and hang out with street gangs to interview them, drug dealers and gangsters, today would no longer be permitted and are not permitted. So in that sense, there is a, an attempt to insulate us from, from, uh, from basically all kinds of physical dangers. And I think that is a problem because every society needs to be able to learn how to fight you know, for, for causes that are well worth fighting for. And there, every, every society needs to be able to count on one another to watch each other's back. I mean, that's a, a fundamental dimension of community life, that you know that if you're in trouble, there are people who are going to watch your back. I don't agree with you about the individual uh, dimensions for a very simple reason. I think it's the opposite. I think it's precisely because we live in a world where the individual self is not taken seriously, where we cannot trust individuals to act autonomously or rationally, where we do not believe that individuals have got the resources to make calculations about uncertainty, uh, you basically de-individualize them and instead of treating them as individuals, we treat them as these numbers that you about whom you make calculations according to a risk template. And all these templates that we use about, uh, about the world that we live in uh, assume that you and me and everybody in this room have got the same appetite and the same capacity to deal with uncertainty. And it doesn't really matter you know, what our individual differences are, we kind of reduce to this one essential sameness uh, and treat it in exactly the same way, which I think has this uh, ultimately the, the very opposite effect. You know, sort of, and that's the irony that all of our language about the individual in reality, it's very opposite. It's completely, very much about denuding the individual self 
and treating it as this homogeneous quantity that you all treat according to a common risk register. Great, okay, a couple more. As a hand there and one on the front row. I have seen you there. I will come to you in the end. Um, what, what was the turning point that you were talking about where fear suddenly became all pervasive in, in the course of history? And what can we learn, do you think, from, from how that happened? Well, you know, there are historical moments when there were waves of fear. For example, if you look at the witchcraft accusations in late medieval Europe, early modern times, you can see that fear dominates Europe. But it's very specific. It's about the devil, it's about witchcraft. And then as fast as it pervades Europe, it goes away. I think the kind of fear that we're having and the way that we talk about fear kicks in in the late 1970s. I mean, there's a, a prelude to that, but it's in the 1970s that the uh, ethos of survivalism becomes all-encompassing, where parenting practices change, where we socialize kids fundamentally differently, where we begin to medicalize everyday human experience. Almost like the same decades, you can see all these kind of uh, anxieties being expressed by a number of different things. And then what happens is that it's kind of it's a slow process that gradually acquires its own inner dynamic, and it really, really kicks in in the late 1990s. You know, I mean, there are things that I could joke about when I wrote my book, Paranoid Parenting, in 201, I could joke about things about that parents were doing that today, I would be called out for being irresponsible. And you know, things, there are things that my child could do in, in 1997 that were forbidden in 201. You know, in 1997, you could take a picture of your child playing football. Today, you can no longer take a picture of a child. That's not allowed. In 1997, it was possible to leave my kid in the swimming pool to swim, and I could go off, have a cigarette, or I could have a drink or whatever, and come back an hour later. Now, that is illegal. You've got to have you know, all these responsible adults saying, I mean, there's all these things you could do not that long ago that is now a no-go area. Oh, I should have. Waited, yeah, sorry. Yeah. That's all right. It's kind of similar in a way. Um, you're talking, we talk about parenting and, and the behavior of individuals and the fact that parents kind of need to do a bit of uh, constructive criticism as well as building self-esteem. That's quite good for their kids uh, and getting the balance right. Um, I'm sort of interested in the broader cause that you were talking about and what needs to happen to fix it because you were talking about the rejection or loss of certainty of a theological framework. And we know that freedom is important and those sorts of things. But I just wondered, does something need to replace that theological framework? How do we fix this? Because on the, on the, behavior, on the level of the behavior of individuals, that's one thing. But what needs to happen on a broad, more broader level? Well, what, I mean, what I argue is that we need to socialize young people differently. Um, uh, we need to introduce them to certain virtues and values. I mean, even reintroduce old Aristotelian values. I, I think you could do worse than that, but we can have more modern secular values that take certain uh, accomplishments much more seriously. I think we, I, and it isn't just simply the value, it's about, you know, do we want to uh, render our young people into passive, you know, you know, kids who are being infantilized all the time, or do we want to take them seriously and stretch them? And I think educators and parents need to do much more about stretching their children, about seeing how far they can go. Uh, I think we need to encourage uh, sort of parents to uh, basically to um, see kids not as 
these little fragile individuals that are inherently vulnerable, powerless, but have the but can learn from experience and gain new strength. And I think it's that culture of socializing that we need to rebalance. And I know that there are many people that agree with that, but at the moment they're too isolated and they feel that their voices are, are not being taken seriously. And somehow we've got to create a condition when that becomes much more acceptable uh, within the mainstream of society. Yeah, you'd get carried away and wave your hands around and your voice goes in and out. If you can Sorry. try and I'll remember your lounge singer days. Yeah, yeah. You know? I'll, I'll, try to, <laughs> I'll try to be very chilled out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, down here. It's a song, yeah. Uh, my, uh, my question or point, there was a lady behind her uh, brought that up about a timing of the fear, so to speak. When I was a little boy, and I don't want to personalise this too much, but I think it's relevant in a sense of fear. Uh, growing up in the streets of South Manchester and, uh, while, while the uh, Moors murderers were hoovering kids up, I was still allowed to go out and play that evening. I was allowed to go to the park that evening. I was allowed to do virtually what I wanted. And I didn't have a mobile phone in my pocket, and my parents had really no idea where I was. Now, that wasn't because they were bad parents. That's because that's the way they saw parenting. Then I used to go to pubs, underage and then overage, while people were blowing them up in the United Kingdom. They didn't shut a pub the next night. They didn't stop you going out. And the BBC and other media didn't scare you with it. So there wasn't a constant scare going on for a week after week after week. What happened was, we, I'm going to use a phrase that I hesitate to use, but I will, we got on with it. Whereas now, I've grown up now to the age of 64 years old, and if I was sitting in a room with, I don't know, younger people who were making new rules about how to bring up children and what is safe and what isn't safe, my experience would be totally disregarded. Now, if you take my experience and say, well, it's not just individually mine, it belonged to a whole group of us, otherwise known as people who grew up in the 60s and 70s. It is completely discounted. Then you look at the BBC, the well, final one. We now listen to should you news and could you news. We don't listen to facts. So something comes out as a possibility and we're scared about it because this could happen. My point is, when are we going to start talking about facts and real safety? I like the way every time you say BBC, you look at me as if I am solely responsible for the output of the BBC because I present some documentaries. Um, I just want to take uh, that guy over there uh, and then I'll come back to you. So the, the guy standing over there behind the pillar, the one you can't see from where you are. Yeah, him over there. And then I will come back to you. Um, firstly, so can you all hear me okay? Oh. Um, firstly, regarding your earlier comments on mental health, you dismissed it as we've, we've always had problems, but now they're being treating, treated as problems. When the first diagnosed autism case was 1941, that means nobody suffered autism before 1941? Or maybe did it mean that as our medical understanding advanced, we started to recognise problems we hadn't seen earlier? and we start to talk about them. Could a similar thing be said about mental health issues? There are real issues that we are recognizing and we are talking about now that we didn't previously. Furthermore, your clear disdain for young people growing up, I found offensive at times. I think your comments, I hope I speak to some other young people here, it's not just me, but um, your comments earlier about how we go to school, get plastered in 100 gold stars, I think it is, um, you said, 
Well, the UK is one of the only economically advanced countries in the world that has major testing at 16. And that puts huge amounts of pressure on students. I've recently been through my GCSEs, so has my girlfriend. We felt incredible pressure and incredible stress. So I think your comment of the constant validation of young people is clearly unfair and coming from someone who's disconnected from the system. Furthermore, your comments regarding university, I will be quick here, um, you were telling me your excitement to go to university. I am excited too, I understand that, but I am also scared. Why am I scared? Because the world has changed, the economy has changed. I am not guaranteed a good job after university, even if I get a good degree. I might never get on the housing ladder. And I'm sure a lot of you are rolling your eyes, thinking, what a na naive 16-year-old, he doesn't know anything. But I can tell you my experience, I can tell you my fear, and I can tell you that what you have said about the treatment of young people in modern society is not my experience of it as a young person. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you are. You've been challenged from both generations there. Uh, if you'd like to get that microphone to there for, for the next. So if you'd like to answer both those generations, and then I'll come to you and then you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think... Uh, it's nice that you're prepared to stand up for your argument. Uh, I think that the idea that somehow the enormous pressure you face at GCSEs and A-levels is historically unique. Uh, it represents uh, an element of historical amnesia. When I went to university, coming from a, a family where nobody went to even finish high school, and we faced our baccalaureate, uh, you know, we all had butterflies in our stomach, and we were totally you know, I remember uh, friends of mine, we used to go out and we were completely petrified because it was a very high-stake examination. Everything depended on the outcome of that examination. And I remember talking to uh, our, our mates at, at that point in time and said, if we don't do well on that exam, coming from our background, that's it. You know, there is no second chance. There is no way that we can ever recover from that. Uh, and that, I think, is the normal reaction to being tested and challenged. Now, the difference between your experience and my experience is that we live in a different culture and a different cultural context, and you experience the very same experiences that we both had differently. And I think uh, my argument is, is that the way that I experienced my uh, pressures on life uh, is more helpful and more useful in being able to deal with difficult circumstances. And I say that on the basis of talking to a lot of people your age and older and, and younger, and they, and they uh, acknowledge to me and they, uh, they kind of talk to me about the problems they're confronted with and the difficulties they have from relationships to work, you know, that, uh, that I think the, are the products of their socialization. And I haven't got contempt for young people because it's not about young people, it's about the way you're socialized, about the generations are socialized. It's about the messages that teachers communicate or adults communicate in general but nothing to do with the person growing up. It's just that fact is, is that, uh, you know, sort of fortunately when I was growing up, the one thing I got all the time from every single adult that I knew, every single person that was close to me, every, every teacher, was that, you know, Frank, anything is possible. I mean, I just love the idea that anything was, it wasn't true, as I discovered. You know, it wasn't true that anything was possible, but the fact that I, that was the idea that was conveyed to me gave me a, as maybe, maybe an illusory strength, but a strength to be able to deal with things that otherwise I would have been much more wary of dealing with. 
So what I'm really arguing about is that there's been a, a really big change in relation to this. And the, the sad story that I know when I teach my first years is that instead of thinking that anything is possible, they already have a very sense of limits. You know, and they already feel that their options to some extent have been closed in a way that maybe it's true, maybe it isn't, but we're not going to find out until you test it. You're not going to find out whether you have to kick that door open completely or whether there is a little crack in that door that allows you through that. So that's really what I'm really arguing. It's not about you know, the moral worth of people here and there. It's about the cultural context within which kind of we, we're kind of making our way. On mental health, I don't agree with you on that because, yes, we, have, we do discover things that we didn't know about. That's the wonderful thing about medicine and psychology. There are many, many things that we weren't really aware of that are, you know, in a sense, uh, destructive to the human psyche. But I also think what has happened is that the, our narrative, our language about life has changed. And we, re we redefine problems you know, that we recognize as problems, not in existential terms, but mental health terms. And I do think there are a lot of uh, conditions that we call mental health issues that I see are as human conditions. And I think that human conditions and human condition-related problems need to be dealt with differently than mental health issues, which require the intervention of psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, and different kind of mental health experts. And I think it's the confusion of the two that leads to a situation where, perversely, people with genuine mental health issues, with very severe conditions, often require six, seven, eight months before they get treated, whereas people who have what I call not really mental health issues, but they basically messed up on that particular week, are looked at and treated as if they were in the same kind of category. So I, that's the, the main point I would suggest. You know. We have about two minutes left, and there's two people with microphones. So look, I'm going to give you basically a sentence each, and then Frank will probably get about 30 seconds to respond. So if you can keep it to literally a sentence, you go first. Do you think the growth in psychological fear across our lives is somehow preventing recognition of real political threats that we should actually be scared of and acting on at the moment? Okay, good, excellent. Frank, what's a moral person and what is a moral resource and is there a difference? Okay, well he's clearly not going to be able to answer both those massive questions <laughs> in a minute. So Frank, this is your final minute, so say, say whatever you want to say to sum up. Oh no, we've got two, we've got two minutes, okay. So two minutes, but that's your absolute lot. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that when it comes to fear, uh, the issue is not, I think it's basically having an assessment of the threats that we're faced with. And I think that uh, there are many, many threats out there. And the real question becomes, not whether we fear or not, but what kind of meaning we, we give to those threats. And I'm, I, I think a very optimistic point of view, and I, I, I cannot think of very many threats that are not susceptible to human solutions. And therefore, you know, my, my uh, presumption is that when we're looking at those kinds of threats, the key, thing key question becomes, what do we do about it? You know, rather than the question becomes, how do we hide away from it? Or how do we almost kind of insulate ourselves? Because the threat's not going to go away. You know, there isn't a safe space for all of us that somehow we can quarantine ourselves from these things. So the question becomes, how do we exercise our agency to be able to do that? I can't answer the question on what's a moral person, but I would say there are two accomplishments that we need to celebrate that we don't have enough of, 
One is to take responsibility for each other. I think it's, it's our role as human beings to, to kind of take care of each other. And that's something that I'm, I'm really scared about. I see old people getting on trains and uh, people just sitting on, on the seats and not giving them that seat. I see pregnant ladies looking like this and everybody is looking at the newspapers because they don't want to give their seats. So taking responsibility, I think, is really uh, very, very important. And the second thing, something that is my next book is about, is judgment. I think we all learn to make moral judgments. We all learn to cultivate our capacity to make moral judgments because that's the only way that we'll get, get a chance to understand and know the distinctions between right and wrong. And I think all of us have got this capacity to make those judgments. It's just at the moment we're too reluctant, we're too wary of doing them. Please thank Frank Ferrady very much for a really interesting hour.